0: And welcome to Texas State Choirs Today. This is our last episode for the season, but certainly not the least. We are joined here by maestro Craig Hella-Johnson, who is a professor of practice now at Texas State University and is just completing his first year with that. Uh, Craig Hella-Johnson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, Since most of our listeners are undergraduates, I always like to start the interview out by asking you about your undergraduate experience and what that was like and, you know, what you went through that, and that in your time. Where did you do your undergraduate study? Mm-hmm.
1: I was an undergrad at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, Northfield, Minnesota. And uh, I became a piano major, so I did a Bachelor of Music in Piano Performance and uh, had a great experience there it's outside of the cold, which I'm still... Fleeing from after all these years, <laughs> and it's kind of the middle of nowhere, isn't it? It is. Well, it's kind of, yeah, it's about uh, 40 minutes south of Minneapolis, so you're oh, close enough bad. to a, yeah, yeah, a city, but definitely cold. It feels like it though, it's up on a hill. We used to sing the song, um, at St. Olaf, the college on the hill, high on Manito Heights. St. Olaf College stands, that's the place where I ever long to be. Anyway, I sing that because <laughs> it was up on this hill. And the perfect spot for these wintry winds to come and blast us. And so, <laughs> you're doing your freshman year, kind of feeling a little homesick and and adjusting to everything while the winter wind blasts you at like forty below. <laughs> but it's a it was a beautiful place to be at school. And of course, uh, relevant to our conversation today, it's a place where a lot of choral music happens. I think. Oh, are,
0: absolutely! It's one of the the bastions of great choral music here. It's an amazing place. Any particular memory or faculty that that really touched you? Who was the person that really made you think, I want to be a choir director?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I came to choral music, I would say naturally, but sort of unexpectedly because I was so focused on piano and I had begun to focus my studies in the orchestral repertoire for orchestral conducting. And I had a teacher, Stephen Amundsen, who was really inspiring to me. He had come back. He was a 25, 26-year-old conductor who just won the big Mozarteum Prize in Salzburg, and it was a big deal that he came on the scene, and uh, he used to do all kinds of great uh, things. I had conducting lessons with him, and then we did all this really fun, fancy ear training stuff where you just, like, push the ear way beyond where you think it can go, and, you know, he'd come from all these really cool competitions where they did this. So he was kind of unloading this on this little undergrad and I had a blast. So I, I was kind of focused there uh, and, in, and with my piano studies, but just always singing in choirs. And something I used to say a lot was, you know, in, in that part of the world, it's a little bit similar in Texas, but in a different kind of way. But in Minnesota, everybody sing, feels like everybody's singing in a choir. And uh, I used to say it's so common, just like brushing your teeth. You know, you don't think about, I never thought... I'm going to go into this for my profession because, you know, you know, you eat, you sleep, you brush your teeth, you sing in a choir, and then you <laughs> develop a career of some kind. And then someone kind of pointed out, you know, you might could do this thing that you love and know. And it just kind of hit me like, that's amazing. I mean, I I actually could be a choral musician and a choral leader. And yeah. So anyway, Ken Jennings, Kenneth Jennings was the choir director of the St. Olaf Choir at that time. And I used to say just how much he inspired me with a whole new idea of choir, because it was the St. Olaf choir that I sang with for three years, uh, it was 72, 73-ish people, but um, he he had us all singing like one art song soloist. I mean, it was very nuanced choral music making at a very kind of interior level, a very deep level. And... So he certainly called forth my um, sort of great my awareness to what choral music could be in terms of uh, the stylistic possibilities, the musical artistry. Yeah, he was golden to me. I had an incredible piano teacher, too, whose name was Dr. Wee, A. Duane Wee, who is is fa- fantastic. So just one really important influence after another at that place yeah great
0: great and that, that, that's where we really all start isn't it an really undergraduate that, that's where the flame starts and then it takes us on the rest of our way
1: yeah and you know for me i would say about that too i i came from a very small town you know and so certainly there are a good number of students at texas state in our programs who have similar stories um you know i came from a small town way up in northern minnesota about 70 miles from the canadian border I got lucky. I got a great piano teacher there. And I used to drive down to Duluth. People laugh when I say that, um, drive South. Um, but I had a great organ teacher there at the University of Minnesota Duluth. But other than that, it was, it was not a cultural hotbed to say the least, mm. you know what I mean? Um, so for me going to, to college and making that switch, I mean, it was a big deal. It was a big transition. And, uh, you know, I used to see some of my friends who grew up in Minneapolis and they'd play in the greater Twin Cities youth orchestra or they'd be part of the Schubert club or all these really great opportunities that I just didn't have. And so it was like some kind of wonderland to just see all of a sudden, all these people in the level that they played and sang at and, and um, just all that music had to offer. just got opened up to me in undergrad. And,
0: and- there were people that were excited about the same things you were. Very much. They, mm-hmm. I, I remember having that feeling, too, that I'm not the only one. There there are other people that are into this as much as I, I am. Mm-hmm. Well, you left academia for quite a while, and now you've come back to Texas State
1: to teach on our faculty. What made you
0: make that change?
1: <laughs> oh, I'm so happy that I have this opportunity it's incredible uh we're so happy to have you mm, here. thank you I you know it it all felt somewhat natural uh, I know you know maybe some of our folks listening may not know I it was probably five or six years ago that I started out in a very sort of light touch way as artist in residence was the title I was given I still have that title and uh, even though I'm doing a lot more now but and I used to just come in maybe four times a semester that first year mm-hmm. and just could be kind of touch points. And then I think the next year it became six, and then maybe a year after that, eight. Um, and then I think a year following, I was teaching a seminar for the conducting students. Uh, so it's kind of grown little by little. But, you know, I, of course, I, I go way back with uh, the very wonderful director of our choral program, Mm -hmm. Dr. Joey Martin, and uh, back in the day when I was the director of choral activities at the University of Texas, uh, uh, and he was a doctoral student, uh, I had left to go to become the director of Chanticleer, but the university actually... made it possible they sort of kept it as a sabbatical they probably knew something that i didn't know that i was actually going to come back <laughs> so they left this open as a sabbatical thing and while i was away in san francisco with chanticleer i had asked um joey martin if he could take the top ensemble there and do some of the facilitating of some other aspects of the program and and so anyway, we go way back. Um, it was a joy to have that place in his life years ago. But then as he's developed this wonderful program and brought you in, which was such an exciting time, and built this wonderful program, of course, and uh, boasts so many beautiful aspects with uh, Dr. Brinkmeyer and Professor Amit and all the great students. So it just felt so attractive when there seemed to be this opportunity just to offer a little something, and then maybe a little something more. And so the opportunity came, I think, was one thing. And uh, and it it just seemed like there were a lot of green lights all the way that all of you made me feel so welcomed. I had always had the idea, however, when I left the University of Texas, because I left, I'd been there 11 years, and I really loved it. And uh, it was a big deal to leave and to go full-time with Conspirate that I left my tenured position and my parents thought, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) This is not a good thing to go diving into the nonprofit world. But I I just always felt like I'd started teaching when I was so young. I was 25 Mm when I started teaching and I had doctoral students at that time. And and it was a great experience, but I, I always had the feeling like I'd like to go out and just do this craft for a while, really learn it. Um, more deeply, learn it better, become a better conductor and a better interpreter, and then come back when I felt like I had more to offer and uh, maybe more to say. And so it felt just beautiful, uh, the timing of all this, and now to be, you know, a professor of practice and having actual conducting students and uh, actual classes. It's it's in addition to the universities being extraordinary to sort of have me keep a good foot and a half in the, the work I've been doing sort of as an artist at large. Mm-hmm. So it's just been a great joy. And um, yeah, so happy to be uh, be here with this coral family, which I think is one of the most special in the country.
0: You've just started this semester doing a new class that you call Sound Lab.
1: Tell us a little bit about that. I'm not sure I know exactly what you're doing. In <laughs> Sound Lab has been a delight. Uh, we are in the first semester... And I think we're going to offer at least once a year, maybe twice a year. Uh, it's a it's a good number of things, and on any given day, you could ask me, and I could tell you something else. <laughs> but the one idea for this was that we have a a place in the music school. That's a place where we could really not only practice improvisation, and you know what is it to actually feel free enough to make sort of free expression in the way we call improvisation. And when but, you
0: say improvisation, you're not sticking primarily to jazz. That's what we usually right. think of improvisation. You're just talking about making sound in yeah. some spontaneous way.
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a very broad-spectrum approach. And we also not only make the sounds, but we really talk about what it is to be a sound creator. And this is, of course, applicable whether one is in quotes, improvising or not. So it's very easy to apply all the things we discuss in there to just all aspects for performers and for teachers and for musicologists and composers. But we talk in there philosophically about what is it to be a creator of sound or to be a conduit for sound in the sense of conductors or um, and what, what cultural role do we play? Uh, what inhibits us from Our fullest capacity as artists and as creators to really be willing to look at those fears and those things that cause our defense walls to come up and sort of all of a sudden think we need to protect ourselves, which of course is deadly to us as musicians because this is such a relational art. It's so powerful. Yeah.
0: It it really, and anyone who's not a performer might not understand that, but it's overwhelming.
1: It is overwhelming. And it's also so incredibly common, you know, as one of the things that it's really a forum. Uh, Sound Lab is a forum. We're often sitting in a circle and uh, discussing uh, just as, as as we are. But I think when people start to share their stories, everybody else gets to hear like, wow, that's my common experience too. That's that's my experience. and And by so doing, we get an opportunity to say, is there the possibility that we could soften and melt away these defenses, you know, so that we can really have a more open field with one another as musicians. Um, can we come to trust that there is enough room for every single one of us to shine, you know, um, that there's no deprivation? Uh, and, and then, you know, it's it's a lot of play. The class is, uh, we've done a variety of different things. One day we had uh, a thing we called a sound bath, and we had a what does he call himself? Well, for the lack for this interview, we we'll call him a sound bath facilitator. <laughs> but he, um, Duff Stoneson, who does an extraordinary work, he plays many instruments. He brought in his didgeridoo, and he has percussion instruments. He has more limbs and appendages than I think most of us do, because he can <laughs> handle playing three or four of them at once. Um, but it's it's part meditative journey, it's part yogic journey. It's, we were all on mats in Evans Auditorium in a circle. We turned the lights way down, huh. and then we had about an hour or so to just bathe in the various sounds that he created and feel them in our bodies. And so that was kind of one of our outings. And um, it's it's in a way like my my underneath it all is 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 sort of a desire to for this class to support each person there, just waking up. And being as fully kind of woke as musicians as possible, fully present to what they're doing and, and, and to kind of understand and listen to what it is their authentic expression is and to really own that and claim that, find courage to... Uh, express from that place. So um, that's a little bit about Sound Lab. It's been a delight. The, the, our, our first group, one day, the other day, I called them the Artest Group because it was our first semester. They could not be a better uh, collection of, of musicians and souls. I mean, they've been just so willing and so brave and, and open. Uh, so I'm really excited uh, about this opportunity to do this. We, we created the class. Uh, just this this last year, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, I, and you know, I
0: I, I it's, I'm sitting here listening to you say this, and I'm thinking, gosh, I wish I had a class like that mm-hmm. when I was a twenty something, because the, the, those those ideas really are things that need to be brought to the top, and it's yeah. hard to do that by yourself sometimes. It, it certainly takes longer.
1: That's well uh, said. No, right. Wait. No, I I would have liked this class too very much you know, I think it feels healing to teach it, you know, I mean, to because it's, it's a way that I get to address all some of those, all of us. I mean, I work with professional musicians all the time, too, who still carry, you know, there, some of them are working just at the top of their game. I mean, they're just exquisite artists. And yet they carry these same kind of skeletons in the closet and these same fears and these same anxieties that just this chronic sense of never enough. And it's not that kind of, Sort of even perfectionistic thing that can be useful sometimes. There can be a kind of an urgency that we have about because it's because we care and all that. It's not mm. that. It's the that's the damaging kind of weighty kind that feels like judgment. Uh, judgment, yeah, mm. and just fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I, I've,
0: I've talked on the show before, and I say to my students often that you know when you're a football coach, you have this many wins and this many losses, and that. Is something that propels us as human beings, but that's not what happens in our world. Yes, it is not a competition. If we're we all, as you say, we all have our place here, and we mm-hmm. all have our voice, and there should be something there. But as a growing musician, that's that's a hard lesson. To learn,
1: it, it is. You're so right, Jonathan. And, and you and have I,
0: to take care of yourself. Yeah. And defend yourself. And it sounds like they're learning how to do that in sound lab.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's, and we're all about excellence, you know, and yet it's, can we find a way to seek excellence in whatever aspect of the musical craft that we're doing because we have a joyful desire to do that, not because we think that success or failure will be the ultimate judge of our worth and our value. If we can begin from a place to say that I have full value as a human being already before I start, and then, you know, I want to I seek out this excellence because I want to be the fullest version of myself I can be, and I want to feel what it's like to carry that phrase and execute that... Um, to the best of my ability, just because it's thrilling because we can, you know, because we're here and we're human and it's exciting, but not because we're sort of being chased by the sense that if we don't, there, you know, we are of no value or of little value. Yeah. So you've
0: been traveling a lot this year. You've been touring with Considering Matthew Shepard. How has the tour been
1: going? Tell Mm. us a little
0: bit about the tour. Where have you gone?
1: Yeah. Well, I think we've gone to, I think it's about 20 cities now. Wow. And yeah, so there were, there were two tours in the fall, Sort of a one-week tour and a a two-and-a-half-week tour. And then, of course, last year, there was a a week-and-a-half, almost a two-week tour. Gosh, where have we been? We've sung kind of all over the place. We just most recently came back from beautiful experiences performing at Stanford in uh, Palo Alto in California and then at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And uh, we sang in the fall at Ravinia. We sang at DePa University. We sang, um, oh, once I get started, a little uh, dreadful, but um, we sang out in New England. We, were, we did a big concert at Ravinia., yeah, at, at the Chicago Music Festival, we had the privilege of singing in Laramie, Wyoming. Uh, oh my. And so that was oh a very moving time for all of us to be in the town where all of this happened, where Matthew Shepard, you know was beaten and then, where where he was going to school at the University of Wyoming, and several other places around. We've been in Mississippi. We've been in the center of the country. We've been east and west. And and in my home area, we sang in a suburb of Minneapolis. Um, It's been so meaningful, uh, to say the least, just rich. um,
0: What are some of the responses you've got on the road? What what are some of the stories you've got or the, the feedback people have said after a performance of the
1: piece? There are a lot of sort of layers, I think, to the response. Um, I would say it's, it has felt consistently in every place we've been a very robust response, you know, just like really passionate and overwhelmingly kind of embracing of the experience and of the work. So that has been deeply gratifying. Um, I would say then, you know, after that initial kind of headline too, that there are lots of doors through which you can kind of enter the piece considering Matthew Shepard. I mean, certainly I I meet musicians who are just intrigued about a new oratorio and who, Mm -hmm. like me, really love this arc of sort of longer storytelling that we do in choral music and that there are oratorios being written. And so I think we meet people just purely on musical and poetic uh, levels. Their lgBTq plus I mean there that's certainly a set of doors people walk through mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes we hear people say, "Oh, things have changed so much for the better, and it's just easy for everybody now, and it's just not true, oh, really yeah <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's a uh, so so we meet all kinds of people, um, I mean, even one of our singers in the last rep was just saying he had just come out to his parents. And his parents literally just disowned him. They said, "Don't come back," you know. So this is happening all over the place still. Mm-hmm. And of course, hate crimes have been spiking in the last two and a half years, like in alarming rates. And uh, and so we're sort of singing this piece into this culture that is really struggling right now with so much more hateful language being thrown about and mm-hmm. at, at, in the highest levels, as we know. And so we're singing this big song about Matt and a big song about love into this sort of very divisive, separative kind of culture. And so a lot of people are just so grateful to kind of hear this authentic expression and kind of just to, to get at least a glimmer of hope that if we keep facing these things together and not otherizing one another, you know, projecting all my unresolved stuff onto you and you doing the same to mm-hmm. me, if we can really learn, then, I mean, I think there's a lot of hope in the piece, so we feel people, Absolutely. you know, kind of coming with that. And we have had many people who've, uh, listeners who said, I'm going to bring my family to this, like LGBTQ folks who will say, "If I, I'm going to bring my family because it might be a way that we can start talking about me, you know, and I want to talk to my family. So we've had a lot oh, of how that. How powerful is that? Yeah.
0: Like the conversation starter. Right? <clears throat> so that, yep. that's, that's beautiful.
1: Ordinary, boy, ordinary boy.
0: between composing this piece and then performing it so much it must feel a bit like you know Matthew mm-hmm. uh, how how has Matthew affected your life
1: hmm. I do feel like I've gotten to know and I would say I, I would say I've gotten to know Matt you know in mm-hmm. the in yeah. the in my journey with it and you've probably heard me a few times kind of talk about both Matt and Matthew and Matt being the regular guy that it was his mother, Judy Shepard, who kind of pointed me in that direction to when I asked her when I first met her, how did she possibly hold all of this, to lose a son and then to sort of have your life just upended and then transformed and suddenly become what I call the two of them, uh, you know, warriors for love. I mean, they're just all over the world, all that, you know, just speaking about erasing hatred and, and embracing one another. So I asked her, I said, how do you do all this? It's just, you know, in in this, this incredible loss. And she said, you know, we lost our son, Matt. She said, the world knows Matthew. And that's who you speak about and sing about most often. But so so there was a sense of, there's a public Matthew and a private Matt. You know, Mm -hmm. we grieve Matt every day. We sort of do the work of Matthew, the spirit that goes out there. So, So I I feel like I've gotten to know Matt Matthew certainly too, but, um, I mean, there are times when I, I felt like I heard his voice in the process, the time when he said, you know, Craig, don't leave me at the fence. That's not where the story ends, you know? And Mm -hmm. it felt like this imperative, like I want to honor that. And, uh, and then I think for me personally too, it was, I didn't realize Jonathan just how, um, in a way personal, this all was. I mean, it it called to me to do something in 1998 when Matt died and I always felt like I wanted to do something but when I finally, 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 out in 2012, decided I got to do this, it's not going to stop hunting me, knocking on my door. I, um, I didn't realize how important it was a a journey for me in terms of just my own personal healing. Mm -hmm. I'm a gay man, uh, and I feel very grateful for my entire life journey, just like I think each of us sort of is invited to to say, just like this is my life, you know, with all the challenges and all of the, the ups and the downs. And But I wouldn't change it, anything right now if I'd go back, and yet there was a whole lot of painful stuff to come through. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think, Many of us gay folks, certainly from my generation, lived with a constant fear, a constant mm-hmm. fear of violence, you know. And and so I think kind of going through this and sort of somehow I, I grabbed a hold of this story, or I think it grabbed a hold of me, um, that's like the ultimate in any of our fears that somehow we're taken, we're beaten, we die. You know, I mean, it's thank God that's such a rare... Uh, somewhat of a rare occurrence but um, but yeah so I mean there was healing in this for me to really face that fear and you know I grew up in some of my earlier years I went through conversion and aversion therapy and so that's a part of my story and so even though I feel as a grown adult a strong man in myself um, and deep into acceptance and love for my entire self and journey I didn't realize still how much tenderness there was in in some of those places that was so it was an important healing journey for me. Has was been. there any
0: any time in the composition process where you kind of felt you were writing the point of view of Matt, but it was also your point of view? Did the the two of them ever
1: come together? Yeah, yeah. I th- I would say somewhat frequently, you know, and and then what's interesting is that I find that listeners will often identify in that way too particularly around that movement, Ordinary Boy, Mm -hmm. because, you know, so many people have asked me on the road, why Matt's story? Why does that, why did that rise to the surface when there are, you know, there are many, many hate crimes that happen every month around the country Mm -hmm. and every day hate crimes happen. And what was it about Matt's story that sort of rose to the surface in the way that it did? And it's been a question that I've asked. But and, there, you know, we could probably do a graduate seminar in that question alone, but I, I think there was something about the way this kid seems so ordinary, you know, and so many people said, could have been me or could have been my neighbor or, yeah. and um, granted there are, you know, a lot, a lot of other people who, you know, who weren't young white Male twenty-one year olds who would have a different experience from, say, a racial standpoint, or, but I think even then I've met so many people who have said, "Just an ordinary kid. This can happen to anybody." And how did it? And uh, so there was that sense of me, just ordinary gay kid, too. the I mean, I had a strong identification there, and and I felt it probably the most in that movement, and uh, and then also in the in a movement, the tenor aria in need of breath which is for me in the piece, a moment when Matt actually becomes Matthew and becomes sort of more mm. spirit and story than he does just individual history. So yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's been a rich, rich, uh, few years that I, I can hardly believe the experience. Cause my, my initiating of this was simply, I need to do this for myself. I wasn't ever expecting we'd be touring this around the country or even recording it. I mean, I, I just knew I needed to sort of, in quotes, write this song, you know, get this out of my system. So was that
0: what it really was? Was it a song that started it, or
1: did you always intend it as a larger work? Yeah, you know, I, I, I wondered... I I say song now because sometimes I'll joke, I'll say this is my like 105 minute love song for Matt. and (laughs) and, um, It's kind of what I was referencing. But for me, I I think a part of me wondered, should I write a song? Would I write a poem? How can I respond? But I always had it from the beginning, a sense of, because I'm a choral guy, you know, in our work, I I had been conducting the Passions of Bach pretty frequently during that time. And... I just thought, what if I could somehow compose a passion for Matt? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. where it started. And it's fun being on a choral um, show like this because it's very specific to us or to our choral family Mm -hmm. in ways that your average non-choral folk wouldn't maybe necessarily understand that connection to. Sort of the big passion stories of Bach, but for me that was kind of the the be all and end all. That they were my best training grounds was the Saint Matthew Passion, the Saint John Passion, and and now that you mention
0: that. I get it. I, uh, yeah, I can
1: see the structure of the
0: piece and yeah, yeah. It's, a little, uh, it's, it's a lot of that. Well, it's it's just congratulations on the mm. piece. I know it's been a huge success mm. and you've touched so many people's lives. It's it's an important work and I hope it gets heard for many Thank many you. years to come.
1: Thank you. I mean, a real highlight of course was getting to do it here at Texas State. That was oh, very that was so very much special fun. and at the TMEA convention oh, as my well gosh. and
0: yeah, and <clears throat> students this age again like you were talking about with sound lab just to have these experiences and you know so many times i think those learning moments are so much stronger than what we give them in the classroom Mm -hmm. you know to give them look this is a life this is a life of this young man and let's honor him and discover about ourselves Mm -hmm. that seems to be a running theme with you is it's not just about the music it's about our life and, and and how that ties together do you feel like you're portraying that as as you're composing of this is about the greater good
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i I mean i think some things in our lives there's sort of one thing leads to another and there's sort of a natural inevitability to see how things unfold i definitely feel like over the course of years that that sense of always getting called to an awareness of the larger. The larger story, if you will, Mm -hmm. not just my individual story or just yours, but our story, Um, sort of the divine aspect of that, too, however one defines that. Absolutely. And, and you know, what's so interesting now is that because our world is in such a challenged place right now, I mean, it's just upended and topsy-turvy and kind of painful, you know, to experience and quite exhausting for so many people, and even somebody who's not watching the news all the time, I just feel it with our students. There's this fatigue, you know, with a lot of people behaving badly right now, you know, and and here we are trying to do this choral art in the middle of this, you know, like mm-hmm. if it doesn't connect in some way, I, I feel like we're not tuning in correctly to what our responsibilities are, and I don't mean it always has to be topical or thematic like i think if you know you guys just recently performed with university singers for a requiem i mean a, an exquisite work of art performed beautifully that throws light into the darkness you know i mean whether it's the b, b minor mass or uh exciting program uh, you know uh the jocelyn Hagen work that uh the leonardo notebooks that were just performed recently all of these things are kind of bright light moments but I think that somehow as artists we are bringing a self-awareness that maybe we were never just this we were never just entertainment of course but but I mean now more than ever uh, we carry responsibility with this art that we create and and uh you know, to help people remember our fullness, our aliveness, uh, what it is to really care and respect for one another. What are some next projects
0: you have coming up?
1: Yeah. Probably um, a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's always always, <laughs> You're always beautiful busy.
1: future things. No, I mean, we're lucky to be in this work where there's always another piece to be discovered or to be, a, you know... Uh, Explored, yeah. I mean, we're we're coming up. Quenssbarry, uh, I will say, because there's lots of wee's here in our lives here together. But Quensbarry is going to be performing and recording a work in the fall, <clears throat> which is a work we commissioned uh, a few years ago with Texas Performing Arts. But it's called "How Little You Are," and it's the composer is Nico Mouly, a fabulous composer, of course. And and uh, when I first proposed this project. The idea was for kind of antiphonal choirs, if you will. Um, You know, and I said, could we have the idea of a a guitar choir and a vocal choir? And anyway, that all morphed eventually into what is now a piece for three guitar quartets and choir. And it's a super cool piece. I love it. Um, And we're going to record it. I've never
0: heard anything like that before. I look forward to that. Yeah,
1: it's pretty special. Yeah, I can't wait to share it. And, uh, and we're recording it with uh, the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. We will perform it with three quartets live. And this will be late October, early November. Uh, and then we're going to record it just with the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet um, to doing all three parts. So we'll overdub mm-hmm. two parts. Um, so that's coming up. We're excited about it. We'll be releasing... And this is a premiere? It was a premiere in, uh, let's see, 2000. I want to say 15, 2015, we premiered it, and I've always wanted to come back to it and get it recorded. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and then we're going to release in August Kunspori's uh, new CD of Choral Music of Jake Renestead. We're nice. looking forward to letting that out in the world. Just finished the editing last week and sort of finally sent it off. I said, nope, I'm done. <laughs> and
0: and so it's going to drop in August?
1: <clears throat> it is. We'll yeah, have to and keep that'll our be on the Delos label. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Every episode that we have with one of our faculty, I end with a section called the spot check. <laughs> and I have a list of questions here from our undergraduate students. And I ask them whatever you want to ask Dr. Johnson, let me know. So I've, we've pulled a few of them, and I, uh, let me hit you with one here. This is great. What is your most memorable mistake in a concert? <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, man. I'll well, tell you mine. Okay, I'll, good. I'll you. Thank you.
0: So, I was in Brooklyn. I was conducting uh, Mozart Requiem, and we were at a church. And it was pouring rain outside. And you know, in New York, there's never a place to park. So, I got dropped off at the church, and I went in. I was doing what I needed to do, and it came time for the concert to start. The place is packed. I stand up on the podium. And my phone rings, and it's Danton telling me that he found a place to park.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm great. like ready for a downbeat.
0: And like ring, oh. ring, ring. yeah, so, so that's mine. That's, <laughs> that's nice. For sure. Yeah. That's really that was good. one of my prouder moments.
1: Will you help me remember one? I mean, it, and whether I'm sure after now the rest of this afternoon, I'll be flooded with remembrances of mistakes. <laughs> don't so, take you down this that is road. sort of just a weird moment, and I don't know if, how much mistake or just weirdness, but. There was a group in Minneapolis called the Metropolitan Symphony Orchestra, and they did this... It was a really fine orchestra, and they did a summer series of outdoor concerts. I was really young and didn't have a lot of experience, and they their conductor had fallen ill, and so they called me. They found their way to me somehow and said, could you just come later this afternoon? One of the things we're doing is Beethoven Symphony Number no. 8, and... And I was, you know, I, at that point, you just you're craving experience. I'm like, you, I'm just gonna say yes, because mm-hmm. I, you know, I had like one and a half hours to prepare, which is, and oh wow, and so it was kind of terrifying. And and uh, and I remember it was really windy, you know, and <sighs> outdoor and oh, all this put together. And I. I, I studied quickly and long enough, which can't really be called studying when it's for forty-five minutes. But <laughs> but I, I I reminded myself and learned enough about that first movement that all I really need once we're going with the Allegro of the Eighth Symphony is that there's a fermata, and I really that's really where I'm essential. The rest of it, I think, these <laughs> players can survive. And uh, but I sort of sort of was feeling confident I knew it, but I wasn't totally sure. And right around when I was in kind of major concern mode during the concert and the music's going in this pavilion and the wind just came and blew and blew my pages. It was this old score from the conductor who is using just, Mm -hmm. they were detached. And so about four or five pages just went flying into the cello section, like between (gasps) the cello and the violi. And I thought, I need that page. <laughs> I <laughs> so I go walking off the Is that the one the with podium. the on? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because, I mean, it's coming up really soon here. And I really, so I just walked into that little small sort of quasi aisle between the cellos and the <laughs> viola. And I got my sheets and I put it back just before the fermata. That's a good story. <laughs> so that was a really, a moment. Yeah, And they just kept on going. They were fine.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were... That is a good story. Oh, here's something a little bit different. Do you still get pre-show jitters and how do you deal with them?
1: Hmm. I do. I was just talking about this with a student the other day. I, I get that energy that's a pre-show jitter almost always and uh thank goodness it you know over time it does become more of a manageable thing but i think one of the ways that i deal with it too is to uh start thinking about the audience and thinking about what we're about to do here is for them when i when i take the focus off of myself i can start breathing more and i think about what did it, what am i going to be doing in this next half hour 45 minutes that can serve that other human being, that can inspire them, that can make them smile or feel something in the depth of their hearts or laugh, um, be affected in some way. So that really helps me a lot is just to take, take, um, that focus off of myself because it can become a really dark and narrow hole we walk into. I
0: really love that. Mm -hmm. I I think that's really well said. And yeah, when you when it stops being about you, mm-hmm. then it's just
1: excitement, exactly. And then all of a sudden we translate it; it's just energy, you mm-hmm. know. And I think another thing that's are really so good for all of us? But when we stop resisting it, we have we think somehow we have to conquer that fear, like get on top of it and squelch it. You know, it's just energy. So we think of how can we channel it? Let's channel it into this performance and meet it. You know, and I kind of think of myself as becoming more porous. Like, that is just moving through me rather than it's attacking me.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Here, one more. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you've been given?
1: Best. <clears throat> so many. Um... I'll just share one that had meaning for me that just stands out as as advice, because sometimes things come down just as shared wisdom. That's not exactly an advice bit, but it's more kind of broader wisdom. But I think just in terms of someone saying, here's a piece of advice, was a fellow, a wonderful theologian. His name was Yaroslav Pelikan, and he taught at Yale University. He was a great scholar, and he loved, he was a biblical scholar who also really Loved Bach, and he wrote a book about Bach, and and uh, but he happened to be a member of our church, and his wife was a member of my very humble little church choir, and uh, so he came came to my graduation from Yale, and he was a very wise man, and he at my graduation party, people saw him walking slowly towards me, and I think people who knew him thought, oh. Yaroslav's gonna do this moment of advice here. <laughs> so the room got kind of quiet. And he grabbed both my hands and he said, Craig, just a few words. And he said, always consultation, never confrontation. And uh, that's what he uh, left with me. And I thought it was really useful. And That uh, is very useful. That's yeah.
0: a, a, a nice poster for the choir, yeah. <laughs> the choir room, And that's, yeah, yeah. that's a good way to roll.
1: Because we all have passionate feelings about all these things that we care about. And when we're interacting with each other in our various communities, whether they be student or faculty or cultural communities, and we always get into troubles with, with each other when we're not always so, I don't know, refined about how we communicate and we've all had our stumbles It's the, called an artistic
0: temperament <laughs> <laughs> I've been told I have that <laughs> Oh I see Good.
1: But it's really nice to have that kind of thought no matter what, no matter how passionate I may feel or how right I think I am or maybe mm-hmm. wrong you are or whatever the case that everything we're doing is in that consulting place and and boy it just makes life so much more pleasant So I've I've, I've appreciated that advice a lot
0: yeah, yeah. I, I, that's one I'll remember. Good, good. Craig, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, we're so excited to have you here with us. I promise this will not be your last time on Texas State <laughs> Choirs today. And for all of our listeners, we'll be back next fall with a whole nother crop of great guest artists here at Texas State University. And music
1: and drumming and
0: This has been Texas State Choirs Today, thank you for listening. Our recording engineer is Ian Flores, our producer is Francis Nieves, and Mark Erickson is our recording consultant. This has been recorded at the historic Fire Station Studio in San Marcos, Texas. If you like our program, take a moment and rate us on iTunes, it really helps us grow our audience. I'm your host, Jonathan Babcock, thank you for listening, and keep singing.